Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 21. Now, before we stand for the reading of scripture, as many of you know, it's our custom here at Redeemer that we preach through books of the Bible. We preach verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through books of the Bible, and one of the reasons we do this is because we feel it is beneficial for us. It allows us to take in the whole counsel of God. It doesn't allow us to skip through difficult, skip by difficult passages, like the one we have for us this morning. And I trust that even as we look at our passage, which is filled with complexities uh, this morning, that it would, we would still find that the Word of God speaks to us about who we are and about who God is. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of Scripture as we look to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read this, these verses to you. Listen to what God's word has to say. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will no, not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights and if he does not do these three things for her, he shall go out for nothing without payment of money. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. We are all prone to hasty judgments, aren't we? Uh, we might have just met someone, and uh, by the way they carry themselves, or maybe by the way they walk or the way they talk, we've already formed an opinion of them. They're a casual acquaintance, and you've already decided, this is a person I can't trust. I'm not really the kind of person I want to be around. And so we take a few preliminary glances, uh, we size them up rather quickly, and then you pass summary judgment on them. But then you get to know this person a little bit better, and then you realize it's not what you thought. You realize that actually you've been quite wrong about that person, and with more than a little guilt, we have to admit that the premature, judgy kind of conclusions that we have uh, were mostly based on, based on superficial knowledge 
of that person. It was just wrong. It was misplaced. And I dare say that perhaps the worst victim of that kind of judgmentalism is God himself. Especially at the hands of those who have a superficial knowledge of the Bible. They light on passages, they come to passages like this one. And it's easy to condemn God. It's easy to say, God is a monster. He condones slavery. And he's sexist. Admittedly, our passage before us is a difficult one. One that maybe we do want to skip past. But I'd like to propose to you that far from exposing a brutal or even a backwards God, this passage puts before us a realistic, compassionate, and saving God. Now, if you were with us last week, we're in a section of Exodus that is commonly known as the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. Israel, God's people, has been rescued out of Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh, to meet God at Mount Sinai. And at that moment, God gives them the Ten Commandments. He's saying, now that you are part of my family, now that I have redeemed you, you are now, here are now the Ten Commandments, the the kind of family rules, so to speak, as being part of my family, people, my covenant community. Now in chapters 21 through 23, which we are beginning here, God provides a covenant code. Essentially, these are extended impressions of the Ten Commandments. They are applications, so to speak, of the Ten Commandments. So it's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's as if the Ten Commandments, God said, be kind to one another. And then he spells out the details for this particular moment. He says, well, what does being kind to one another look like? It means like you don't take things out of your siblings' hands or there will be consequences, you know, or you don't hit your brother or sister. You know, you don't yell at your brother or sister, whatever it might be. So chapters 21 through 23, the book of the covenant is really a snapshot in the life of Israel. And while the Ten Commandments are applicable at all times, in all contexts, the book of the covenant was for a particular social context, a particular period in the life of Israel. Now, while we may not be Israel, we can certainly examine these laws and ask ourselves what they divulge about God and about his character. And there are three things that it reveals. First is the realism of God, the realism of God. You see, when we come to verses 1 through 11, we face a fundamental question before us. Why would a good God decide to legislate slavery? Isn't that wrong? Why would he legislate slavery? Is God pro-slavery? That's a good question. Because I think we can all agree that slavery has been a blight on our nation's history. Even more, I think we can all agree that we grieve that even some Christians defended the institution of slavery that we knew here in the United States, that we read in our history books in the United States. So does God condone slavery? 
By way of response, it's important to understand that these laws don't commend sin. Rather, it constrains sin. You see, the laws that we see before us are meant to govern an actual society composed of fallen human beings. In other words, it takes for granted that sin exists and that people are sinful. They accommodate sin to a degree and tries to limit the damage done by sin. Because in the Bible, we know from Genesis 1 and 2, what is God's intention for humanity? That we would live free with God, without sin. In great joy, walking with God. That is what we are designed to be. And yet we also know from Genesis 3, with the sin of Adam and Eve and the fall, that all of humanity if we, is plunged into sin. We, we know that humanity is desperately sick. And so the testimony of the Bible is that there will be no perfect justice in this world. Not until Jesus returns. That is why we long for his return. Which means that these laws are not setting up a utopia. But rather, it is God responding realistically to sinners. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 19.8. And if you're looking at those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 824 if you pick up one of those Black Pew Bibles. But Matthew 19.8, and this verse, I think, will help, help clarify things for us. Matthew 19, verse 8. Page 824. Here, Jesus is being questioned about divorce. And basically, the assumption here is divorce is absolutely okay. But Jesus responds and says in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning. What beginning? From the garden. It was not so. So what is Jesus saying here in Matthew 19.8? You don't divorce. And in fact, scriptures teach us that God hates divorce, but it's the hardness of heart that God provides laws concerning divorce. It's called a concession, an accommodation to the reality of sin. Laws are given to limit it, to mitigate it. And in a perfect world, there would be no divorce. There would be no polygamy. But we don't live in a perfect world. So God provides a mechanism when marriages fall apart. He regulates and constrains it so that the worst wickedness might not happen, might not run rampant. And that's what we're, how we're to understand these verses back in chapter 21. You see, in Exodus 21, you see, these laws are not revealing God's standard of morality. That's not what these laws are about. That comes from the Ten Commandments. These are case laws in the Mosaic Covenant, and they are nets, not ceilings of God's righteousness. Uh, Bobby Jamison says, they are a net to keep people from falling deeper into sin, not a ceiling showing us the upper limits of God's righteousness that he expects from us. Let's think about the context in which these laws were given. We're given these law codes, and immediately Moses begins with law codes about slavery. And why is that? Because Israel was just slaves. They had just come out of Egypt. 
And we've said it before, but it's worth saying again, the first part of Exodus is about getting Israel out of Egypt. And the second half of Exodus is about getting Egypt out of Israel. Because what was Israel's common understanding of slavery? It's what they experienced in Egypt with Pharaoh. And what was that like? We got a glimpse of it earlier in Exodus. It was involuntary, with no end to bondage. These slaves, they were anonymous, deprived, voiceless. They had no power. They had no agency over their own lives, no property rights, no rest, no worship. And God says no. He limits and regulates and minimizes such excesses and redirects the sinful tendencies of the human heart. You see, they're coming out of the worst excesses of Egyptian slavery. They have been under the lash so long. And you would think, of course, Israel, of all people, they would know, do not treat other human beings like cattle. Of all people, they should not even need these laws. And yet, God is what? He is realistic. He understands. He's a realist. He knows our hearts. He knows how the abused quickly become abusers. He knows that the hated easily hate in return. He knows that we're the types of people, when we are forgiven much, we'll turn around, find somebody who owes us a little debt and wants to squeeze every single penny out of them. God is a realist about our hearts and about the wickedness of our world, so he legislates and restrains the worst excesses of sin. He gives to Israel these case laws, paradigms, examples of how God's principles could be applied to their context. Now, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 21, and that's going to be on page uh, 82, I think, or 62, 62 of your Bibles. If you turn back to Exodus 21, I want you to think with me, secondly, about the compassion of God in these laws. Think with me about the compassion of God in these laws. Let's look at these verses. Verse 2, we see that word slave. Now, when we think of slavery, many of us have pictures in our minds, movies and TV shows, and for maybe an older generation of us, that would be roots or glory. Uh, for us young folks, we might think 12 years a slave or emancipation with Will Smith. So when we hear the word slave, most of us in the United States think of the transatlantic slave trade from the 16th to 19th century, where nearly 11 million Africans landed in the Americas from here to Brazil. Yet as you see in your Bibles, if you're holding a copy of the ESV, there's a footnote concerning that word slave. It says, if you look down, or servant. In other words, the word in the Hebrew for slave, which is eved, has a wide range of meaning. It can mean anyone who is subject to another's authority. So do you know who else is called an eved? The suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is called an eved. King David is also called an eved in 2 Samuel 3. But here's the bottom line, and I think there's consensus here with what 
most scholars who have studied this closely have said. Uh, the bottom line is that this so-called slavery is actually indentured servitude, which is radically different from the slave trade in the United States that was practiced in the United States. That's not to say there's no moral difficulties here or challenges in these practices, but I'm saying that it is radically different from the slavery that we have in our minds when we think of everything that was fought over during the Civil War. Here in Exodus, it refers to indentured servitude, meaning that someone voluntarily, willingly enters this master into a relationship with this master and slave relationship because they cannot pay their debts. Now, this is an agricultural society here for Israel. So if you know, you're farming and you have a year of your crops don't come to fruition, you can maybe withstand that. But if after two years your crops fail, you and your family are likely going to starve to death. So people would often sell themselves into slavery because there was no option for them. They were destitute, impoverished, starving, vulnerable. You put yourself then into a service into another family that can house you and feed you and pay you wages. That's a far cry from our modern understanding of slavery. And you look at verse 2. It says that the servitude is almost always time-limited. You're essentially signing yourself over to a six-year contract, right? Seventh year, you go free. If you come in single, you go out single. If you come in married, you go out married. And what's more, if, you, if there's a corresponding passage in Deuteronomy 15.12, you don't have to look there. But in the seventh year, the slave was not sent, sent away empty-handed. Let me read you about what it says. Uh, Masters were required to give them everything they needed, actually. It says in Deuteronomy, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord has blessed you, you shall give to him, referring to the slave. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. So the master in the seventh year had a responsibility to make sure that their slave came out better than when they first came in. Many liken this indentured servitude like serving in the military. Uh, Those who, there are people who simply reach a dead end in life or perhaps they reach a point where they feel like there's no upward mobility for them. Uh, Maybe they don't feel they're employable. They can't afford much, and so they enter into the military, and they serve in the military for a number of years that they're told. And they're they're in the military, and it's some strict authority there, but they still have legal rights, and they still have protection. They are given a roof over their heads. They are taught discipline. They have three square meals. And when they go out, they are even afforded a GI Bill. Uh, to help pay for college or graduate school to support their career goals. In fact, sometimes the military is so helpful that those in the military, even though they're free, remain in the military and make it a career. Which is kind of what we see in Exodus 21, 4 through 6. Look at these verses here. If a master gave a servant a wife, then should the slave go free, the wife would remain with the master. Now, this isn't a law about breaking up families. Rather, it's saying that it's possible that when, uh, when the master introduces a wife to another slave, she might still have years left because she is also subject 
to being set free in the, in, after six years of service. So he might go free first, but she might still have some time left on her contract, so to speak. So a husband has three choices. He can go free and simply just wait for her until her time is up. Or he could redeem his family. He could pay for their redemption. Or he could choose to join that family and stay. That's what we see in verse 5. He could freely decide that this is a good master. He could say, I love him. And he treats me well. He's introduced me to my wife. My wife he, he's honest. Why would I want to leave? So there's this very public ceremony about piercing the ear of the slave, uh, perhaps indicating a willingness to, to listen to his master. But it's all about love here. It's like the story of Ruth and Naomi, where Naomi says, I don't have any more sons for you. You just leave. And Ruth says, no, I, I love you. Your gods are my gods. I will be where you go, I will go. Or it's like the disciples who say to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't think it's over-spiritualizing the text to ponder for a moment whether we have this sort of relationship with Jesus. I'm thinking mostly of the young people here or the adulting people, trying, people trying to get into the adulting life right now. Young children, students, soon-to-be college students, college students, speaking to all of you. As you grow up, your mom and dad perhaps made you go to church. It's not quite slavery, but it felt like that sometimes. Uh, you had to go. Mom and dad probably yanked on that ear long enough where it felt like you, they pierced that thing. But has there been a time when you've had a moment like verse 5? Where you say, you know, I can do whatever I want to do on a Sunday. I'm free to choose an extracurricular activity to do on Sunday. I just entered into university and it's rush week. I can do anything I want to do on Sunday. I could do this. I could do that. I have so many choices available to me. But I love my master. I love Jesus and I want to go to church and I want to serve his people. Where else would I go? Uh, you, know, just, you just have to know that there will be a day when mom and dad are no longer around to pull that ear anymore. And what will you decide then? Well, let's continue looking at these verses very quickly and look at verses 7 through 11. Once more, we see the compassion of God in these laws designed to protect women. In verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So this is a daughter being sold to be, to be a spouse. Now again, the idea here is of a destitute family. The crops go bad and there's too many mouths to feed. So what can you possibly do? One of the things you can possibly do is give up your daughter for adoption, so to speak, so that they could have a better life in this other family, to be married to this man, to be provided for. And what's happening here is he's given into, she's being given into another household for the purpose of marriage. And we see a number of scenarios listed in which the female slave can be released. First, in verse 8, if he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with her afterwards, 
Well, she can be redeemed by one of her own people. He's not allowed to sell her off. Or verse 9, perhaps she's a fine fit for an arranged marriage with the son. So that can happen. And how is he supposed to treat her? As a member of the family, daughter. And then verse 10, he takes this woman to be his own wife. But then in the case of polygamy, where he says, I'm going to marry another person. In that case, he cannot just put her into the corner. He can't just say, ah, I have this shiny new wife. She's really great. And so you go live over there and fend for yourself. Not okay. He says, if you don't provide clothing, marital rights, you don't provide food, you're essentially deserting her. You can, she can leave. There's no redemption price. She can just goes free. So before we wrap up this section, let me reiterate that this kind of slavery mentioned here is not like that transatlantic slave trade. Servants can become full members of the household. We remember this. If you know your Bibles in Genesis, Abraham had a servant. He would have been an heir to his whole house. Eleazar, right? Could have been an heir to the whole household. What's more, if you simply skip down to verse 16, if you have your Bibles in you can see verse 16. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Right here, it says, you go out and you ensnare, you steal someone from another nation and enslave them. That is punishable by death. You cannot do that. Or look down at verse 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. Same thing. You knock out their tooth, same thing. They go free. In other words, what is the idea here? If you produce any type of physical lasting damage upon this person, they are free. We see these pictures from the Civil War era of slaves and the lashes on their back, and we, it makes your stomach turn. But God says, any lasting injury, a slave goes free. Not one mark. One more verse from Deuteronomy 23. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. you shall he shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, whatever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. In other words... The law in Deuteronomy tells us further, provides further laws, and it says that if a slave runs away from their master and goes somewhere else, you cannot retrieve him. They're not to be returned to their slave masters. All these verses put together mean one thing. Those who practice slavery in the transatlantic slave trade blatantly disregarded and disobeyed such verses. They may claim to be justifying their practice from the Bible, but they are not. And it was sin. But don't miss the big picture. What's up with these regulations? Why all these regulations? Why would anyone take in someone, house them, feed them, pay them, make sure they're better off than they were when they arrived? What are all these laws about? And I hope you begin to see that God wants to protect the vulnerable. He wants to help those at the low end of the economic and social scale, all those who are so easily mistreated. These laws are given to Israel not so that individuals would pull themselves up by their bootstraps, 
but for the community. These laws are given for the community as a whole to rally around and support the person who is facing financial ruin and death. It's sharing a burden. It's shouldering problems within the community. And I guess that some of you, I suspect that some of you are tempted to think that God is not interested in mundane things. Maybe he doesn't care about things like tired bodies, troubled marriages, feelings of sadness or depression. Maybe God doesn't really care that much that I'm not going to have a job in the next week. He's only interested in the people who make the cut, who look the part, who have no troubles. God is not interested in the nitty-gritty, everyday, real-world things. Well, look at the passage again. It's not true at all, is it? God is a God who cares about the realities of a real world. God is a God of all compassion, the Father of mercies. And he understands. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, down to earth to live here on this earth. He entered our world and faced our everyday to sympathize with us. God cares for his people. He is a father to the fatherless who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So don't think that God is careless of your hurts and your obvious needs. And don't think you ever need to carry your burdens by yourself. That's what the covenant community is here for. We are the church. We bear one another's burdens. We don't do it perfectly. But that is one of our goals. One of our callings where we are to open up our homes to those who are at the end of their rope. We're to open up our ears and have a listening ear to their needs or to open up our wallets or to give up our time. So Christian, do not suffer in silence. Do not suffer alone. You can turn to a compassionate God that is turned toward you, that beats for you in Jesus Christ and you can turn to his people and we will strive to bear your burdens with you and walk with you through the worst and darkest of times. Well, we've seen the realism of God and the compassion of God very quickly. This last point here, these verses, we see the salvation of God. Now, at several points along the way, God builds into these regulations, even for slavery, reminders of his saving design. God is so committed to making the gospel pattern clear that he even works it in to these laws that are here. So, for example, look at verse 2. We saw slaves are to be released every seventh year. That's actually the first of an entire series of laws that talk about Sabbath laws. Uh, Israel's life is going to be reflect and amplify the Sabbath laws. And the Sabbath principle is that one day in seven, you get rest. And here, too, on the seventh year is a Sabbath year for a slave when they're to be set entirely free. God sets captives free that they might rest. This is why Jesus can say, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's more, there's an underlining spiritual reality hinted here but made more clear in the New Testament that our most egregious slavery is that of our own sin, doing what we want to do with zero thought of God. 
We all know that we are people who have fallen short. We all know that we are broken in some way. We all know that we have sinned. And it's tiring. It's tiring. We load ourselves up. We bind ourselves day after day, trying day after day to do right, to feel right. And the great concern of the Bible, the burden of the heart of God, is to point us to Christ. Christ who says, come to me and I will set you free. Come to me and I will give you rest. The compassionate heart of God beats for sinners like you and like me. This is the call of Jesus Christ to us this morning. There is a deep bondage that Jesus can deliver you from. Some of you live under this tyranny every day of your lives. Your conscience, your conscience stings and sears and smites you, and you long for what? You long for freedom. You want freedom from all this. And freedom is found in Jesus Christ who pleads with you to come to him that he might give you rest. Freedom comes when you come into the household of God and you are set free from sin and become slaves to God and his righteousness. Freedom comes when you know Christ and you say, I want to go there. I don't want to leave this place. I love my master and he loves me. This is why throughout the ages, Christians have asked themselves, what is our greatest hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. The world will tell you freedom is, I'm my own. I follow my heart. But the gospel says your greatest freedom is found when you realize that you are not your own. And you can say from the depths of your heart, God, I'm yours. It's that simple and that radical. So I call on you to be set free from slavery to sin. Be bound to a loving, compassionate master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this particularly difficult passage and with all sorts of complexities. We have many questions that perhaps still surface. But we ask, oh Lord, that you would help us to have eyes to see that you are a loving God that desires to set us free by binding us to yourself. When we are made When we do and live the way you created us to be, which is to be your people, that is when we experience great freedom and joy. So we give praise to you, our loving and compassionate God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.